the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on this September 11th, 2020. We are currently 53 days from Election Day and 15 weeks away from Christmas. Well, Governor Kate Brown announced yesterday that Oregon has never before had as much uncontained wildfire burning at once. Wildfires are affecting tens of thousands of Oregonians, burning nearly 900,000 acres or nearly twice the yearly average over the past 10 years in just the past week. Well, as of Thursday morning, the five largest fires, each more than 100,000 acres, are collectively about 1% contained. Wind and unstable air conditions are making it impossible for firefighters to begin to try to contain many of the most threatening fires in the area. We've never seen this amount of uncontrolled fire across our state, the governor pointed out. An estimated 30 to 40,000 Oregonians have evacuated their homes. An unknown number have died, she said. Well, Oregonians are eager to get all of the information as quickly as possible. Right now, our firefighters are focused on saving lives, and we want them to stay focused on that critical work. As we get more information about fatalities, we will provide that to the public as quickly as possible. There are about 3,000 firefighters actively working to respond to the fires. But according to the chief of fire protection for the Oregon Department of Forestry, Doug Graff, uh, it will take uh, likely take twice that number over the coming weeks to get the fires under control. It was a grim reprisal for the first such briefing she uh, held one day earlier at which she warned people to expect massive loss of homes, businesses, other property and human lives. I hope we are all praying for Oregon, praying for rain and prepared to minister to and serve our neighbors. Meanwhile, an emergency declaration was announced by Mayor Wheeler in the city of Portland due to the extreme threat of fire on Thursday. As of Friday morning, there were 36 fires burning across Oregon and southwest Washington being exacerbated by high winds and dry conditions. The resulting smoke caused air quality issues in many places around both states. The weather conditions, coupled with the fact that Portland is... uh, Uh, short on firefighting resources because many of them have been sent to help firefights uh, across the state. The mayor's office declared a state of emergency. That declaration calls for several things, a state of emergency, the closure of city-owned outdoor properties, protecting the city's um, uh, houseless population, creating evacuation sites, making financial resources available, um, and the emergency declaration will remain in effect through uh, this 24th of September, which is a Thursday, unless it is extended. As of Thursday, there were no evacuation notices in Multnomah County, but stay tuned. Well, speaking of air quality, Portland's air quality has deteriorated to downright dangerous levels in the past 24 hours, making it the worst among major cities across the globe. The uh, air quality monitoring website, iqair.com, which ranks air pollution, Uh, across nearly 100 cities internationally, elevated Portland Friday to its number one position as in the worst with an overall air quality index of 239. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's website listed Portland's measurement on Friday as even higher at 349. 
Portland is followed on the IQAir.com's rankings by other West Coast cities, also plagued by wildfires. San Francisco is number two with an air quality index of 186. Seattle, number three at 172 as of this morning. A measurement of zero or 50 is considered good, 50 to 100 moderate, 100 to 150 is unhealthy for sensitive groups, and over 150 is unhealthy for everyone. Levels 300 to 500 are deemed hazardous. And again, Oregon's air quality as of Friday, 349. Meanwhile, the Riverside fire engulfing Clackamas County moved within a half mile of the city of Estacada as of this morning as the blaze grew to 130,000 acres. The entire county remained under an evacuation warning with residents in many small rural communities, more than half of the county overall, under orders to flee immediately, others to be ready to do so. Weather conditions improved markedly and the fire grew by just 5,000 acres overnight. Dry, strong east winds have given way to cooler breezes as of uh, of five uh, around five miles per hour from the west, and the forecast calls for rain early next week. Let us pray for rain. Well, the fire didn't move north towards Sandy overnight, and that's good news. Still, the Riverside fire is completely uncontained, and firefighters expect it will ultimately merge with the Beachy Creek fire to the south of Marion County. The Riverside fire has been two miles away from Estacada as of Thursday. On Friday, it was southeast of the junction of Highway 211 and 224. Estacada, Colton, and nearby uh, nearly all of Malala, rather, are also under level three evacuation orders, meaning residents should flee immediately. There are some spot fires within a half mile of Colton, but the main fire remains four miles away. The fire is six miles southeast of Malala. Air quality remains atrocious and authorities warned everyone in the level three zone to clear out. The county posted a full evacuation map online. If somebody is in that area, we might not be able to get to them. And if they're in there, uh, they could very much be on their own until things change. It's extremely hazardous, Clackamas County Sheriff Craig Roberts said on Friday morning. Clackamas County is Oregon's third largest county with 418,000 residents directly to Portland South and Southeast. It bans upscale suburban homes, rural farm communities, and a substantial portion of the Mount Hood National Forest. The evacuations uh, briefly jammed roads and left residents scrambling to find shelter for themselves and for their farm animals. Meanwhile, for the fifth consecutive week, the number of new coronavirus cases declined in the state of Oregon, officials said yesterday. Deaths and the percentage of positive tests also declined in the week ending September 6th. The weekly report showed a 5% drop in cases and more than 30% since the pandemic's peak in mid-July. There were 23 deaths that week, down from 39 the week before, and the positive test rate dropped to 4.3%, uh, a 0.1% decline Uh, week to week. But those between the ages of 20 to 29 continue to have the highest reported infection rate, while hospitalizations are highest in older people. Nearly half of all deaths were in people 80 or older. Two dozen Oregon counties recorded another 187 confirmed presumptive cases of COVID-19 on Thursday, along with three more deaths, the Oregon Health Authority reported. President Trump on Friday announced that Bahrain has agreed to normalize relations with Israel. Another diplomatic win for the president coming after a similar agreement with the United Arab Emirates just last month. This is really something special, very special, he said in an Oval Office uh, announcement predicting that the region will become more secure and prosperous as a result of the diplomatic moves. The sand was loaded up with blood and now you'll see a lot of that sand will be loaded up with peace. 
Uh, the president said, well, according to a, a formal statement issued by the three countries, they agreed to es- the establishment of full diplomatic relations between Israel and the kingdom of Bahrain. This is an historic breakthrough to further peace in the Middle East, opening direct dialogue and ties between these two dynamic societies and advanced economies will continue the positive transformation of the Middle East and increase stability, security and prosperity in that region, the statement said. The statement said that Israel had also affirmed that all Muslims may visit and pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque and Jerusalem's uh, other holy sites will remain open for peaceful worshipers of all faiths. The leaders of Israel and Bahrain also praised President Trump for his dedication to peace in the region, his focus on shared challenges and the pragmatic and unique approach uh, he had taken to bringing their nations together. In other news, the president um, blasted Joe Biden's NAFTA mistake during a Michigan rally. One day after the Democrat uh, campaigned in Michigan, President Trump went there and ripped the former vice president's record on jobs and trade. President Trump told the crowd in Freeland, Saginaw County, that Biden had devoted his career to offshoring Michigan's jobs, outsourcing Michigan's factories, throwing open your borders, dragging us into endless foreign wars and surrendering our children to Uh, children's future to China. Yesterday, Joe Biden was here in Michigan, the president said, lying about his lifetime of cold-hearted globalist betrayals. The president continued referring to Biden's past support for the Clinton-era NAFTA uh, deal. The president pointed to a uh, Biden interview on CNN in which the Democrat conceded that the Trump-negotiated U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement was better than NAFTA. Biden said he made a mistake by supporting NAFTA. Trump told the crowd he doesn't know what's going on. I have the distinct pleasure of running against the worst presidential candidate in presidential politics. The president continued, can you imagine if I lost to him? I'd uh, have to say I lost to the worst candidate ever put up. Don't do that to me, Michigan. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we are going to hear from Jerry Stewart. He has produced a, a special to remind us of the events of September 11th, 2001. We'll tell you more about that in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You know, we often say that when horrific events occur, we will never forget. The truth is, human nature, well, we do forget. Today marks the 19th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. Most of us remember where we were when that uh, image, uh, when the information was first brought to us. I remember where I was, what my first reaction was. Well, we don't want to forget, so today we're going to share with you a brief Jerry Stewart special that recalls the events of September 11th, 2001, perhaps putting it in uh, into a broader context as we look back and we look ahead. Once again, Jerry Stewart remembering September 11th, 2001, right here on The Georgine Rice Show. The resolve of our great nation is being tested. Make no mistake, we will show the world that we will pass this test. Hello, I'm Jerry Stewart. On the morning of September the 11th, 2001, Members of a Middle East terrorist group boarded four of our U.S. passenger planes and succeeded in using these planes to kill thousands of innocent American people. These terrorists believed that if their plan would work, America would crumble. But they were wrong. Their terrorist plan may have worked, and all of their calculations and time and place may have succeeded, but they made one grave error. 
they underestimated the American people. Because through all the death and horror and devastation, through all the grief and suffering, through all the loss, we have become not weaker, but stronger. It was Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, Our greatest glory consists not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. And the real strength of America is not in our possessions, but in our people, we the people, and our faith in Almighty God. As a nation, we have been blessed so much by God, and even though some are doing their best to push God out of our nation, miraculously, thankfully, He is still here with us. After the terrorist attacks, some asked the question, where was God? Why didn't he stop the attacks? That's a question no one can answer. But we do know this. God was there. As the passengers on those planes waited, they prayed. Some called their loved ones and prayed. Some prayed with telephone operators. And those who spoke with these passengers talk still today of the peaceful assurance as they spoke, a calm only God could give. After the first plane hit that North Tower, there were thousands of people who were trapped with no way to escape. There are reports of one man on the 105th floor of Tower 1 going from office to office praying with people, with groups of people, giving them the assurance of God's love, His mercy, and His forgiveness through Christ. There are amazing stories of people who could have left but instead voluntarily stayed with the injured and those who could not get down the stairs. People who knew that by staying, they would never survive. Where did these people find the unbelievable courage to stay? From Almighty God. One firefighter who had just finished his final training the day before, his first assignment was the 9-11 fires. He remembers, as the bus transported him and 50 other firefighters to that horrible scene, a chaplain was on the bus praying. One fire department chaplain was killed outside the buildings, hit by falling debris. He had been kneeling in the rubble and chaos, giving the last rites to a dying firefighter. And the firefighters who bravely stormed into those buildings, literally melting from the intense heat of the jet fuel, pouring down those stairwells, those brave workers went right into the very face of death with nothing more in mind than to help those in need. There are accounts of people who met those firefighters in those stairwells, their faces, their determination, their bravery. Keep on climbing, says the captain, up through the smoke and smell. Keep on climbing, says the captain, I think I heard somebody yell. Keep on climbing, says the captain, alive or dead, not ours to tell. Keep on climbing, calls the captain, forget about your pain, we have a few more floors to gain. Keep on climbing, yells the captain, we will bring them down again. Keep on climbing, cries the captain, if I can, so can you. Keep on climbing, orders the captain. Right now, I need your best from you. Keep on climbing, screams the captain. Forget about those sounds. It's just some girders twisting and some concrete falling down. Keep on climbing, whispers the captain. Climb right up to the light. 
right up to that sunshine. No smoke to smell, no fire to fight. Keep on climbing, sings the captain. That angel's hand will lead the way. Rest, boys, sighs the captain. You did your job today. Keep on climbing, praise your captain. Eyes raised, headed for the top. And when you're tired and feel like quitting, remember them. They didn't stop. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Oh yes, on 9-11, God was there to comfort and console, to hold his dear children oh so tight, to wrap them up in his loving arms and take them home. And that same God is here with us today to comfort you if you're hurting, here with us today to give us in the midst of sorrow a peace in our hearts that only God can give. He is here with us today to mourn with us in the loss of so many brave Americans. We, the people. I'm Jerry Stewart, saying goodbye for now. And be assured, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any creature shall separate us from God's love. May God bless you, and may God bless America. Thanks to those who assisted in the production of this 9-11 tribute feature. The poem, Climb Higher, was written by Langley City Fire Chief Jim McGregor. To know more about Jerry Stewart and his various patriotic programs and features, you can go now to his website at www.jerrystewartusa.com. May God bless our veterans, and God, please bless our America. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. Remembering 9-11-2001, a day we will never forget. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, William, or Will Franklin Graham, the grandson of legendary preacher and renowned evangelist Billy Graham, has published his first book titled Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul, Uh, Will is the third generation of Grahams to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ under the banner of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Will makes the lessons from each devotional writing relevant to the reader. He weaves personal stories, uh, memories from the Graham family. He's also included special family photos of Billy Graham as well, adding sort of a heartfelt and unique perspective to what people think they know about Billy Graham's life and the family. 
Um, he writes that as he worked on the book Redeemed, I kept coming back to Psalm 107.9, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. He says of the book that I hope that Redeemed will honor my grandfather's legacy and in the incredible way that God used him around the world. Well, readers will enjoy content that's centered on the life-changing power of a relationship with God with themes like prayer, sharing your faith, and the willingness to obey God's guidance and divine timing. Will shares his grandfather's passion for for preaching God's word. Uh, he shared the gospel message across six continents since beginning his evangelistic ministry back in 2004 with youth-oriented one-day events in Canada. He also serves in the, uh, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association as executive director of the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove in um, Asheville, North Carolina. The Cove offers multi-day seminars on a variety of Christian subjects and features nationally recognized speakers. Well, in addition to honoring his grandfather's life of impact, through his uh, devotional. Uh, Will recently attended the opening of the Billy Graham exhibit at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. that highlights Billy Graham's life, ministry, and legacy. Will also will uh, portray his grandfather in the theatrical release of Unbroken, Path to Redemption that opened uh, late last year. It chronicles the true story of Olympian and World War II hero Louis um, Zamperini, who survived uh, torture as a prisoner of war, only to endure nightmares, alcoholism, and a disintegrating Marriage, that is, until he finally found true hope and peace after accepting Jesus as his Savior in 1949 at a Billy Graham crusade, which, by the way, is depicted by Billy Graham's great-grandson, Will Graham. Well, he joins us today to talk about Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul. Welcome. It is such a pleasure to have you with us today. Georgine, uh, great. Thank you for letting me come on your show today. Now, um, this is such a beautiful book because it... Uh, it's heartwarming to those of us who have loved uh, your grandfather for many years and uh, followed his ministry. Many of us came to faith through uh, his ministry, have been influenced uh, largely. And to to read your perspective, um, I think, just adds to our uh, our longing for that same kind of relationship and to know God in the way that not only your grandfather did, but your father and now you. So congratulations. Well, well thank you. It's... Um... It, it, I guess sometimes it's been a long time coming. Um, I've had a lot of people ask me to write a book, but God never allowed me to write a book. He was, um, you know, when I first was approached, uh, I don't know, a number of years ago, about a decade ago, um, people came up and said, we want you to write a book, and we'll publish it. And I said, well, okay. And I started sitting down, and I prayed about it, and God just said, well, no, this isn't the right time. And he, he said that over multiple years and multiple times, and God just told me not to write and to focus on other things. And then uh, through this movie project that I did with Universal Pictures on, on the movie about Louis Zamperini, um, someone asked me to write a, a book, and I said, no, God doesn't want me to write right now, it, which was true, mm-hmm. but I didn't pray about it. And then all of a sudden, I went home and prayed about it, saying, God, when do you want me to write a book? He said, now. And so <laughs> um, he said, the time is now. And so I, I've been working, you might say I've been working on this book for a long, a while, but now I'll, I had to get it together and present it to um, Harper Collins or the people at Thomas Nelson at Harper Collins, and um, you know, and I was grateful for their partnership in this book. And um, you know, it's things I've learned. It's not a book about Will Graham. It's not a book about Billy Graham, though I'm in it. My granddaddy's in it. Mm-hmm. Stories from us, but it's it's really about God. How God changed people's lives. What I've seen God do and teach me in different parts of the world. Um, you know, the things I've seen, the things I've learned, the things I've watched, uh, 
and exhibited in other people like my grandfather and my grandmother for that matter uh, and through my father, uh, Franklin Graham. And so th- these are the things I want to pass on to other people, the things I've seen to encourage them to live the Christian life. You know, I really appreciate the way you described seeking the Lord's uh, counsel because it would have been easy being the grandson of Billy Graham, the son of Franklin Graham, to simply assume that this is the course that I should take, that if an offer to write a book comes, that's what I should do because of the life and legacy of of your family. But to seek God as an individual and to seek his direction for your life uh, speaks a lot not only about your commitment to him, but about the legacy of your uh, parents and grandparents. How challenging um, has it been for you to find your own way as a follower of Jesus in the shadow of such uh, such great men? Well, it, it, I tell you, when I came to know Christ, uh, you know, people, you know, a lot of people say, "Well, you're Billy Graham's grandson; you get into heaven for free," <laughs> and uh, you, he's got extra tickets, I'm sure. And um, and and they say it with a smile. I know that they're you know they're teasing yeah, me. Yeah. Um, but. I had to come to know Christ. As a matter of fact, that's one of the first chapters in my book is how I came to know Christ. I want to share with people how Christ changed Will Graham's life. And it wasn't because I'm Billy Graham's grandson. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was through communion. Uh, communion did not save me. I want to be real clear on that. Communion didn't save me. But what happened was it was Communion Sunday. I, I used to be in children's church. Now they kicked me out and now put me in grown-up church. I was too old to be in children's church anymore, and I liked children's church. They had great they had great juice. They had vanilla wafers. I loved it. It had a <laughs> snack in there every time. And then uh, when I had to go up to grown-up church, I looked, and lo and behold, look, they had a whole bunch of loaves of bread up there, and they had grape juice, too. I was like, this is the best ever. I love grown-up church. <laughs> and when the, when the communion elements came by, I reached out to grab some because I thought it was snacks. I mean, that's all I thought it was. I didn't know it was something special. And my dad told me no. And he didn't hurt my feelings or anything. I didn't really think twice about it. I thought he was afraid I was going to spill the grape juice on the carpet or something. And so I didn't think anything of it. And uh, we went home to, and had lunch at home. And and then uh, dad took me up to my room and explained to me why I couldn't have communion. And that's because I'd never asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. And so it wasn't because I was Billy Graham's grandson that was going to get me to heaven. It's because you know, because of what Jesus did for me. And when I was a little kid, I didn't understand everything in the Bible, but I knew that Jesus, or that God was real, that he sent his son Jesus to die in my place because I was a sinner, and I knew that I was a sinner. I'd done bad things at six years old. I knew I'd done bad things. I lied. I've stolen. Uh, I mean, I was a retro, you know, I was a bad kid. I mean, I was a good kid in, in a general sense, but I'd done bad things. And the, the fourth thing I realized is that I want to spend eternity with Jesus, and if I could, and the only way I could do that is to ask Jesus Christ to come to my life and to forgive Will Graham for Will Graham's sins. And so my father led me to the Lord, and that's how I came to know Christ. So, growing up in the Graham family, it comes with a lot of blessings. I tell people there's a lot of bad things that come with it too, but the good things outweigh the bad things. And it's I'm grateful to be a grandson of Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. People love Billy Graham. It opens up doors for me. I'm grateful for the name of Billy Graham. And um, and so I'm, I love living in his shadow because it's a wonderful shadow, and I'm grateful for the shadow that he presents. Um, but I'm not called to be 
merely Billy Graham's grandson. I'm called to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so wherever I go, I want to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever he has me to do. And uh, part of that was writing this book, and the rest of it, most of the time, it's preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ wherever he sends me. Now, as I mentioned, this is a devotional uh, for the longing soul. The title is Redeemed. Why did you choose this subject, and why do you think the Lord would have us reflect on these things at, at this time through your book? Well, that's a wonderful question. You know, uh, I'm not, to be honest, in all honesty, I'm not a very good person who comes up with titles. If you look at all my sermons, they're real boring titles. Uh, like, because I, I was a pastor for a long time, so I preached a lot of, I preached in every book of the Bible, and I don't have very good titles on my sermons. Um, I'm just not creative. And so Harper Collins uh, and the people at Thomas Nelson helped me come up with the title Redeemed. But I wanted to say, and I loved it because Redeemed speaks of something being restored to be brought back. And um, and so I like that title, and that's what I want this book to do: bring us back to the basics, um, to, to to help us redeem the time that we have left on this earth. And so I like that title, but I feel like it needed more. And then Psalm 107 verse 9 kept popping up when I was writing this book. When I first started writing this book, uh, my assistant uh, she led devotions here at work where I live or where I work, and she she quoted this first, and it just it hit me good. It was one of those good hits, like, man, that is a tremendous verse right there. And I started studying Psalm 107, verse 9, and all of 107. On another page, the church I was going to, the pastor started a whole series on Psalm 107. And so when I ended the book, the pastor started preaching on Psalm 107, (laughs) verse 9. And so so it was kind of like the bookends of writing this book. And I said, okay, God, you're trying to tell me something about this book. (laughs) Uh, or this this verse here and how it needs to apply to my book. And so HarperCollins helped me come up talking about this verse, uh, Devotions for a Longing Soul. There's so many people out in this world that are longing for more in life, and they try to fill it with sex. They try to fill it with drugs. They try to fill it with alcohol. They try to fill it with money, success, and it leaves them empty. And I'm here to tell you that God's going to fill your soul with great things, but he has to do it, and you can't do it. And so that's what this book's kind of about. Now, we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Will Graham. His uh, first book, titled Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul, it includes uh, wonderful pictures and stories and uh, everything you would expect in a devotional. We'll talk more about that when we return. Once again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the first ever devotional book written by Billy Graham's grandson, William Graham, or Will, uh, following in his grandfather's footsteps, preaching stadium crusades around the world. In Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul, he shares intimate stories of growing up in his grandfather's shadow, as well as anecdotes from his travels that speak to the common struggles of the Christian life. But as he mentioned in our first segment, this isn't a book about him or his grandfather. This is a book about Jesus. It was released in October to commemorate uh, what would have been Billy Graham's 100th birthday. Each entry in the book includes a Bible verse, a short prayer, and oftentimes a photo, sometimes of Will and his grandfather and other family members that illustrate each story. He serves currently as a full-time evangelist and executive director of the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina, where he lives with his wife and three children. The book uh, will encourage you while uh, providing a glimpse into the personal faith of the Graham family, whose passion has been shared 
um, through the gospel for many, many years. Well, let's talk about the book itself. Each chapter reflects, uh, obviously, a different uh, focus. There are 50 chapters. You begin with communion. Uh, describe for our listeners who don't have a copy in front of them how the book is structured and how you um, see this as a devotional. Well, I uh, appreciate that. And, uh, you know, each chapter, first and foremost, starts off with Scripture. Mm-hmm. I believe that Scripture is the most important thing. My devotional book is not the most important thing in this world. It's God's Word that's the most important thing. Uh, I'm a preacher of the gospel, and so I want the gospel to be first and foremost on every chapter. And so I start with a verse, and then the, I want to talk about what how I've seen that verse played out in my life, um, the ways I've seen it played out. I think almost all my devotions come from, I say almost all of them, I know for one that was, it was before I was born. Well, there's a couple that were before I was born, but these are some of my grandfather's stories um, that he's taught me and told me about. So these are things I've learned from my grandfather, from my dad, from other people in life, things that I've seen on my own when I've been preaching the word. And so I kind of share a story and how that plays out. And then I also give a, I always have a quote of my granddaddy that talks about the subject that we're talking about in each chapter. And then I close with a, just a small prayer. It's a small prayer to help encourage the believer to, to talk to God and hand their problems over to God and allow God to work this message into their heart. And so that's kind of the structure. It's 50 chapters, but they're like two or three pages. Mm-hmm. pages. So it's, these aren't real long chapters, and uh, it's great. This is not a substitute for reading God's Word. <laughs> Make sure that you read God's Word. I hope this just will come alongside of you and encourage you as well as you read God's Word. Well, and it's a wonderful thing that during the course of the day, you might want to read it in the middle of the day or just before you lay your head on the pillow. But it's a wonderful reminder of uh, of the reliability of God's word, how he works in the lives of his people. And then uh, to see some of these uh, chapters in the context of your family. And we've witnessed the God's faithfulness uh, being worked out in your family. It's just a wonderfully encouraging um, uh devotional. Now, you also include a prayer with each chapter, which I find is a wonderful way to end a devotion. Well, I do. And, you know, one thing that my grandfather taught me in life, I I went to go talk to him about one day, and this is the, I was making a very important decision about leaving the local church, which I was a pastor of, to come and help the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And to be honest, I didn't want to do it, but I, I knew God was calling me to do it. I love being a pastor, and I didn't want to leave my church. God told me to do it, and so I went to go talk to my granddaddy about it. And he told me, he said, Will, he said, we would love and be honored uh, to have you come and work at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. It would be wonderful to have my grandson here um, and helping us. He said, that's what the Lord has uh, has you to do. He said, but I, I want to tell you about two things I regret in life. One is, he said, um, I wish I knew the Bible as good as your grandmother. Hmm. And, um, he said, uh, your grandmother knew the Bible so well. I wish I knew it as well as she did. And um, and then the second thing was, um, he said, well, I wish I had spent less time preaching, more time reading God's Word, and more time praying. I wish I spent more time on my knees. We could accomplish so much more and see more people come to know Christ if I had preached less, studied more, and prayed more. And um, that spoke volumes to me. And so that's why with at the end of each of these chapters, I want to make sure that we spend time in prayer. There's a small prayer, short prayer, and it's just 
it's just basically us, the reader, talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, these are the things I'm struggling with in my life. These are the things I need help with. Lord, show me how to do it. And uh, allow the Lord to keep molding us and making us into his image. And that's what the goal of the Christian life is to be, is to reflect Christ. And um, I hope this book will enable someone to look more like Jesus at the end of the 50 days. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's such extraordinary advice that your grandfather gave to you. And for those of us who know him as the evangelist, uh, to hear him express any regret at all when you consider the, the millions of people whose lives were impacted by the clear presentation of the gospel in the ministry of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, to hear his advice to his grandson, how did that impact the course of your ministry and, and how you move forward in seeking God's will and how you spend your time in ministry? Well, I appreciate um I wish, I'm not sure if there's ever going to be a person alive that says, oh, yeah, I, sp- I spent enough time in prayer. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if we'll ever get to that point. Because uh, to be honest, I saw my granddaddy, I, I kind of joke and say I saw him doing three things. Um, he was always reading his Bible. He was always praying. And he was always watching Larry King live. <laughs> <laughs> so he loved watching Larry King live because he loved learning about other people. And Larry King was one of the best at just talking to people and and where people famous people would come on the show and he would get to interview them and you get to know this famous person and uh, my granddad loved watching Larry King because uh, and he used what he learned on Larry King so that when he met this individual in real life sometime down the road he already had a basis for a conversation because he learned it from Larry King's show and so and I say all this because I wish I'd spent more do I spend enough time in prayer no do I spend enough time in God's Word? No. And I'm not sure where the right amount is either. And um, I just want to be striving that I keep praying. I spend more time on my knees and listen to my granddaddy do less preaching, more praying, and more studying God's Word. And um, and that part, I'm not sure. If, I don't know what that – he didn't tell me that's uh, 30 minutes or an hour. <laughs> I think that's the part that the Holy Spirit's got to lead yeah, you. Yeah, it's a, a worthy so, uh, aspiration. <laughs> well, let's talk exactly. about just the, the, the idea of devotion. Uh, we all have very busy lives. There are things that must be done in order for us to, to um, provide for our families and so on. Uh, and yet we are, are encouraged in Scripture to spend time away in God's Word, to spend time in devotion. Um, this talked a little bit about why it's important for us to designate um, intentionally times in which we just step away, maybe for mere moments, but to step away and spend time in God's presence uh, in a quiet time, uh, reading through a devotion like Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. Why is that so important? Well, it, it, something I learned from my great-grandfather. Now, this is not Billy Graham. This would be Billy Graham's father-in-law, Ruth Graham's father, my great-grandfather, who's a missionary in China. And he ran a medical hospital over there, and as a doctor, as a, and then a husband and a father. I mean, he had a lot of responsibilities over there. And he would look at his schedule for the next day, and he said, oh, my goodness, look at all these surgeries I got to do, all these things. He said, I'm going to need to spend more time in prayer. Hmm. And oftentimes when we get busy, we do less prayer. And something my great-grandfather taught me is that we need to spend more time in prayer when we're busy and give it unto the Lord. And... um you know, and I think it's very important that every Christian spend time with the Lord. Listen, I know we spend a lot of time in cars, driving to work, spend stuck in traffic, picking up kids. Man, that's when we can be pouring out our heart to the Lord and uh, praying to the Lord, giving that day to Him. It's a great way to keep our mind focused on God. 
and tells the Lord, you know, help us be slow to speak. <laughs> you know, I think our mouth gets us in more trouble than anything else. And say, Lord, I got some big decisions I got to make. Help me to speak correctly and to be and to speak positively toward other people, uh, so I can be a positive person around others, and help me to be a witness for you. And that comes through prayer. And when we just talk to God, and we spend so much time in the car, we'll listen to radio. And listen, they're going to be listening to your show. That's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but we need to spend time in with God, and uh, that's real important. And um, and, I, and I'm not a perfect example of it. I'm not a perfect example, but we need to strive to talk more with God and listen to God. And God speaks through his word. And so I want to encourage people to be studying God's word through, not just praying, but studying God's word. Yes. Um, a devotional book's a good thing, but it's not a substitute for the Word of God. And we should be spending time in God's Word. That's why I've included God's Word in this, so we can spend a little time in God's Word. But I would encourage your readers or your listeners to be to be reading God's Word on their own, apart from my book. But this book's a great supplement to come along and to encourage you a little bit further in your study as well. Yeah. Once again, the book is titled The Devotional, Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul. Will Graham, it's been such a pleasure to uh, to talk with you, and congratulations on your first book. Well, thank you, Georgine. Great talking with you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. By the way, the book is published by Thomas Nelson and is currently available in bookstores. What a tremendous legacy uh, that he can look back uh, on, thinking of his uh, great-grandparents and his grandparents, his father, and so on. But each one of us has the same capacity to leave a legacy of faith and faithfulness. So I think you'll find encouragement in Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, Joe Biden's national press secretary tried to deflect a question on Thursday about whether the Democratic presidential nominee used a teleprompter when answering questions from regular Americans earlier in the week. The spokesman, T.J. Ducklow, he claimed the President Trump's campaign was trying to use the issue as a distraction. but didn't actually answer the question. In other developments, reporters blasted, have been blasted for shamefully embarrassing softball questions at a rare Biden press conference. And Megan McCain says the media is the enemy of Republicans. Uh, Biden is being mocked after an apparent teleprompter issue during his coronavirus remarks. During the event, he's heard saying, let me go to the second thing. What he was referring to is still up in the air. Well, cell phones of multiple people uh, on then special counsel Robert Mueller's investigative team were wiped for various reasons during the probe. Newly released records from the Department of Justice show at least several dozen phones were wiped of information because of forgotten passcodes, irreparable screen damage, loss of device intentional deletion or other reasons and came before the Department of Justice Office of Inspector General. Um, uh, could uh, review the uh, devices the records show. Well, Mueller's deputy, Andrew Weissman, accidentally wiped his phone twice after entering the wrong passcode too many times in March 2018, the records show, and the lawyer's uh, phone was wiped by uh, wiped itself rather without his intervention. The uh, documents were released after a lawsuit from the conservative watchdog group Judicial Watch. They were first reported by Sean Davis of the Federalist Society. Well, 9-11 ceremonies were reimagined this year with the pandemic as the rebuilt World Trade Center faces the coronavirus economic threat. Daniel Hoffman says America is now more vulnerable than at any time of September 11, 2001 attacks, saying we need a forward defense. And Stanford, New York, created a huge tribute 
to those lost on 9-11 with 2,978 flags. I'd love to see that uh, that image. Well, fans booed as Kansas City Chiefs and Houston Texans social justice warriors locked arms in solidarity. And according to Gallup, public favorability toward the sports industry has collapsed. Viewers are calling to cancel their Netflix subscriptions after the disgusting Cuties premiere, sexualizing 12-year-old uh, girls. And Netflix is defending a movie after critics say it normalizes pedophilia. Hmm, there seems to be a pattern here. Election meddling? Well, the Los Angeles County Health Director says she expects schools to reopen after the election. As uh, deadly wildfires rage in western states, at least 23 are dead. And Portland has declared a state of emergency as 500,000, more than 10% of the population, flee wildfires across Oregon. Another 884,000 Americans filed new unemployment claims last week. And the U.S. is blocking imports from China's Uyghur slave camps. California businesses are leaving the state by the thousands. That uh, trend continuing. Dozens of Austrians have received U.S. coronavirus stimulus checks. The question is, are mail-in ballots next? And India and China have exchanged the first gunfire over the disputed border in 45 years, breaking the treaty that bans the use of firearms. Well, as I mentioned, Netflix is under fire for child exploitation as they air the film Cuties with preteens twerking, sexualizing girls. Lila Rose says over 600,000 people have signed a change petition uh, pledging to cancel their Netflix subscriptions. If each signee had an account and canceled at $12.99 a month, this would be $7.8 million monthly that Netflix has lost. That's $93 million a year. Keep canceling, they suggest. Well, Texas State Representative Matt Schrafer, he says, I have asked Texas Attorney General Paxton's office to investigate the Netflix film Cuties for possible violations of child exploitation and child pornography laws. From Texas State Senator Bob Hall, Thank you, he says. Next session, I will file a bill to make pedophilia a crime in our Texas state constitution. We must never normalize this kind of wickedness in our Texas. Well, Black Lives Matter is killing jobs of black police chiefs from Seattle to Dallas. In many cases, white progressives are destroying black careers. The legislative uh, department uh, director, rather, for uh, the Oregon Speaker of the House was arrested for rioting in the ongoing demonstrations here in the Portland area. And several have been arrested for starting uh, fires here in the West Coast, though it isn't clear how much of it is due to arson. The Wall Street Journal explains that fire experts say there has been little confidence, um, uh, has been a confluence, rather, of factors Higher temperatures, high winds, unusually dry forests, and rare lightning storms, but there have been arsons cited as well. And while there are some reports of Antifa involvement in the fires, Andy, no cautions, be careful of rumors that political groups are involved in starting wildfires. People have spread claims on social media that aren't supported by evidence. Wildfires are not Antifa's M.O. Instead, they target businesses, police, and government property. They start fires, but not in forests, typically. Well, Los Angeles has rescinded its Halloween ban after public outcry. ABC News um, covered it to some extent, uh, to some extent rather, on how to do Halloween during this season for those who acknowledge it. And on this day in history, 2001, America is changed forever when 19 Al Qaeda terrorists in a coordinated attack 
hijacked four passenger jetliners, sending two of the planes smashing into New York City's World Trade Center, one into the Pentagon, and the fourth into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, resulting in nearly 3,000 deaths. The ramifications of September 11th terror attacks are still unfolding to this day. On this same day in history, 1776, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Edward Rutledge traveled to Staten Island, New York, to meet Britain's Admiral Lord Richard Howe in a bid to negotiate an end to the American Revolution. 1789, Alexander Hamilton is appointed the first Secretary of the Treasury. 1936, Boulder Dam, now Hoover Dam, begins operation as President Franklin Delano Roosevelt presses a key in Washington to signal the startup of the dam's first hydroelectric generator. 1941, groundbreaking takes uh, place for the Pentagon. Uh, 1997, in Scotland, voters approved the establishment of a parliament to run for uh, their domestic affairs after 290 years of union with England. 1998, Congress releases Kenneth Starr's voluminous report that offers graphic details of President Clinton's alleged misconduct and levels accusations of perjury and obstruction of justice. The president's attorneys quickly issue a point-by-point rebuttal. And finally, on this day in history, 2012, the Benghazi attacks, a mob armed with guns and grenades launches a night-long attack on a U.S. diplomatic outpost and a CIA annex in Benghazi, Libya, killing U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens, information officer. Sean Smith and two CIA operatives, Glenn Doherty and Tyrone Woods, both former Navy SEALs. Well, today we solemnly mark the anniversary of the 9-11 attack on our nation when 2,977 innocents were murdered by 19 Islamic fascists. There were 2,763 people murdered in New York, including the passengers and crew of AA Flight uh, Flight 11 and UA Flight 175. The victims included 343 firefighters and paramedics, 23 police officers and 37 Port Authority officers. At the Pentagon, 189 people were murdered, including 64 aboard American Airlines Flight 77 and 55 military personnel. In Pennsylvania, 44 people were murdered aboard um, AA Flight 93. More than 6,000 others were injured. Though mostly U.S. citizens, the victims were also from 77 other countries. This was not just an attack against America. It was an attack against the unalienable rights of all people to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. From 9-11 to this date, the U.S. has thwarted well over 100 planned Islamic attacks on our nation, and we must remain vigilant to avoid another catastrophic attack on our homeland. But there are those who have continued to add attacks to their indiscriminate and murderous record, including jihadist attacks in San Bernardino, Fort Hood, Orlando, Boston, Chattanooga, Little Rock, and Manhattan. Many cities around the world have suffered Islamist mass attacks, including London, Paris, Berlin, Brussels, Madrid, Manchester, Nice, Bali, Mumbai, Sri Lanka, Nairobi, Ankara, Belsum, and others. We offer our support and prayers for the families of the World Trade Center, Pentagon, and Shanksville victims, and for our armed forces who are now serving on the front lines in the long war to contain Islamic terrorism. We also remember those first responders, police, fire, and others who rushed toward the danger to support and help as many as possible, many of whom lost their lives on that day and many who have lost their lives following being exposed to the toxic brew that was the result of the events of that day. Today we remember and pledge never to forget.
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are continuing our look at the events of 9-11-2001. And coming up in our next segment, we'll share with you a special by Jerry Stewart, remembering 9-11. It's a special. We'll also offer some final words in our final segment on what we've learned, what 9-11 has taught us, an important lesson that we would do well to apply today. Well, the names of 72 law enforcement officers who died during the terror attacks on September 11, 2001, were read aloud this morning, the 19th remembrance of the day the tragedy struck in the form of three hijacked planes that crashed in New York City, Arlington, Virginia, and Shanksville. The National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund honored the fallen law enforcement heroes in Washington in a ceremony that began shortly after 8.15 a.m. Friday when Sergeant Steve Troiano and Detective Mark Mazzello from the Arlington County Police Department, who responded to the Pentagon on that fateful day, took turns reading aloud the victims' names. Together, our country of active and retired law enforcement will ensure that the Memorial Fund continues its mission to honor the fallen, tell the story of our nation's law enforcement, and make it safer through those who serve. Uh, Marsha Ferentano, CEO of the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund, at the start of the somber ceremony, said, Heroes' names were read and wreaths were laid at intervals starting at 846 a.m., 9.02 a.m., 9.37 a.m., and 10.03 a.m. to signify when hijacked planes crashed into the Twin Towers at the World Trade Center in New York City, the Pentagon, and in Arlington, and in the field located in Shanksville. In total, 2,977 people were killed on that day, including the 72 law enforcement officers and 343 firefighters. The highest number of casualties was reported from the World Trade Center, where more than 2,750 people, including law enforcement, were killed or believed dead. The Office of the New York City Medical Examiner is still working to identify roughly 1,100 victims' remains. We were face-to-face with pure evil. Islamist extremist terrorism. Rudy Giuliani, who was mayor of New York City at the time of the attacks, during a Friday morning interview, Giuliani spoke with Fox and Friends earlier in the day, saying because of the bravery of the rescue workers, and I'm going to point out the New York City Police Department as well as the firefighters and that department and the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, uh, he said they served seven or 8,000 lives Uh, that probably would have uh, been dead had it not been such an expert in rescue operation. And those are the the words of the 9-11 Commission, by the way. Well, Giuliani, who was lauded as America's mayor in the wake of those attacks, added that the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, also known as the 9-11 Commission, credited rescue workers with saving every life that was possible to be saved. And that's because they gave up their lives, he said. Please remember that when uh, we do all this horrible, divisive uh, rhetoric about police officers, please remember they're the ones who run in and save you, not the people yelling and screaming about them. Uh, Something we would do well to remember. What a far cry we we are from that day uh, to this. Well, members of Generation Z, those born in 1996 or later, were initially dubbed Homelanders, a moniker associated with their birth, the creation of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and the more than a decade-long war on terror. 
now 19 years later. Many of those children have graduated from high school and are once again stepping out into an uncertain future. In the middle of a global health crisis, an economic recession, and a series of horrific national disasters, or rather national disasters, they're able to vote in a presidential election for the first time. These are children born on 9-11 voting in November. Together, Generation Z and millennial voters will account for 37 percent of eligible voters this year, according to a study by the Pew Research. Examination of detailed age data released by the Census Bureau earlier this year revealed that more than half of the nation's total population are now members of the millennial generation or younger. As of uh, the July of 2019, the combined millennial, Generation Z, and youth voters totaled 166 million, or 50.7% of America's population. That's a larger count than the 162 million people associated with the combined Gen X, baby boomer, and older cohorts. Well, electorally, as the economist reported this month, 2020 will likely be the last stand for baby boomer politics. Now consider that, the shift that we are about to face, the last stand for baby boomer politics. By November, Gen Z is expected to account for one out of every 10 voters, and a recent next-gen American poll showed 50% of voter, uh, voters age 18 to 24 were planning to vote up 10% from a similar poll in 2016. And while younger voters tend to lean left, The 67 million children of Gen Z have grown up in a different social and political climate than even younger millennials. With lives marked by tragedies uh, of the 2010s, such as the shootings of Sandy Hook Elementary School and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, memories of the early 2000s are hazy, as they are uh, for most young millennials. More than 300 of America's 9-11 babies never made it to their 19th birthday. According to a Thursday report in Politico, they were 15 when President Trump clinched victory over Hillary Clinton four years ago. Since then, politics have permeated their lives in part through social media platforms. Their dominant media are Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, and iTunes podcasts. While many in older generations continue to post Facebook updates, read the paper, and watch the evening news, they're diverse. Gay marriage has been legal somewhere in the uh, in the country for nearly half of their lives. In addition, while many do align themselves with Democrats, Gen Z also includes pl- uh, plenty of independents and Republicans. This year, with the backdrop of nas- uh, national protests against racial inequality and the devastating COVID-19 pandemic, more Gen Zers are uniting behind causes than ever before. We could be in a rough patch for a while, but in the end, collectively, we will figure it out and get back on track because that's what we've done. That's what the New York um, uh, Kieran W. says, one of the 9-11 babies interviewed by Politico. After 9-11, it was a very tragic event. No one's life has been the same since. But as a country, we grew from that and we've built from it. We'll see if that's the case as this is the last gasp, if you will, of the baby boomers. Meanwhile, Daniel Hoffman points out that America now is more vulnerable than at the time of September 11, 2001, when the attacks put, uh, took place, and we need a forward defense. 
He writes, let us remember terrorism's innocent victims and be deeply thankful to our brave patriots defending our nation. On the morning of September 11, 2001, a dear friend and former CIA colleague of mine was in Manhattan when al-Qaeda terrorists struck our homeland and murdered almost 3,000 innocent people in New York City, the Pentagon, and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. My friend was standing on the street near the World Trade Center when American Airline Flight 11 and United Airline Flight 175 crashed into the North and South Towers. Witnessing the deadliest terrorist attack in human history had the most significant impact on my former colleague's career. He later told me that the images of innocent victims jumping from the towers to their deaths remain seared in his consciousness. Up to that point, he had never served in South Asia, but he would go on to serve multiple tours and conflict zones there, as well as in the Middle East, on the front lines in the fight against terrorism. September 11, 2001 was transformational for me and my colleagues in the intelligence community, State Department and military, and for our entire nation. I recall my parents, again quoting Daniel Hoffman, and grandparents' generations who spoke of remembering exactly where they were when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Today, everyone in their late 20s and older remembers exactly where they were on September 11, 2001. Al-Qaeda's horrific act of mass murder demonstrated that our enemies could reach us in spite of the oceans that separated us from Europe, Africa, and Asia. We had become accustomed to sending troops off to foreign lands in wartime. Now the war on terrorism had reached the continental United States. The world is even more interconnected today, including through cyberspace. That makes America even more vulnerable to attack. At the same time, security precautions at airports and federal buildings in particular have increased considerably since 2001. One of the most critical lessons of September 11th terrorist attacks was that we need a robust forward presence to protect us, especially against threats emanating from ungoverned spaces. This includes intelligence collection, diplomacy, and when justified, military engagement so that we can detect threats and take appropriate action to prevent terrorists from striking us again. The forward presence should be as small as necessary to accomplish the mission of defending our nation within a limited scope, protecting America from attacks that should not be confused with an endless war or our failed efforts uh, this century at nation building. What we need to do is follow the late columnist and Fox News contributor Charles Krauthammer's strategy of forward defense. This entails confronting our enemies over there rather than allowing them to plan and execute attacks on our homeland from an ungoverned space and failed states. We stand now in the wake of 9-11, attempting to do just that. Up next, a special from Jerry Stewart remembering 9-11-2001. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You know, we often say that when horrific events occur, we will never forget. The truth is, human nature, well, we do forget. Today marks the 19th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. Most of us remember where we were when that uh, image, uh, when the information was first brought to us. I remember where I was, what my first reaction was. Well, we don't want to forget, so today we're going to share with you a brief Jerry Stewart special that recalls the events of September 11, 2001, perhaps putting it in uh, into a broader context as we look back and we look ahead. Once again, Jerry Stewart remembering September 11, 2001, right here on The Georgine Rice Show. The resolve of our great nation is being tested. 
And make no mistake, we will show the world that we will pass this test. Hello, I'm Jerry Stewart. On the morning of September the 11th, 2001, members of a Middle East terrorist group boarded four of our U.S. passenger planes and succeeded in using these planes to kill thousands of innocent American people. These terrorists believed that if their plan would work, America would crumble. But they were wrong. Their terrorist plan may have worked, and all of their calculations and time and place may have succeeded, but they made one grave error. They underestimated the American people. Because through all the death and horror and devastation, through all the grief and suffering, through all the loss, we have become not weaker, but stronger. It was Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, Our greatest glory consists not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. And the real strength of America is not in our possessions, but in our people, we the people, and our faith in Almighty God. As a nation, we have been blessed so much by God And even though some are doing their best to push God out of our nation, miraculously, thankfully, He is still here with us. After the terrorist attack, some asked the question, Where was God? Why didn't He stop the attacks? That's a question no one can answer. But we do know this. God was there. As the passengers on those planes waited, they prayed. Some called their loved ones and prayed. Some prayed with telephone operators. And those who spoke with these passengers talk still today of the peaceful assurance as they spoke, a calm only God could give. After the first plane hit that North Tower, there were thousands of people who were trapped with no way to escape. There are reports of one man on the 105th floor of Tower 1 going from office to office praying with people, with groups of people, giving them the assurance of God's love, His mercy, and His forgiveness through Christ. There are amazing stories of people who could have left but instead voluntarily stayed with the injured and those who could not get down the stairs. People who knew that by staying, they would never survive. Where did these people find the unbelievable courage to stay? From Almighty God. One firefighter who had just finished his final training the day before, his first assignment was the 9-11 fires. He remembers, as the bus transported him and 50 other firefighters to that horrible scene, a chaplain was on the bus praying. One fire department chaplain was killed outside the buildings, hit by falling debris. He had been kneeling in the rubble and chaos, giving the last rites to a dying firefighter. And the firefighters who bravely stormed into those buildings, literally melting from the intense heat of the jet fuel, pouring down those stairwells, those brave workers went right into the very face of death with nothing more in mind than to help those in need. There are accounts of people who met those firefighters in those stairwells, their faces, their determination, their bravery. Keep on climbing, says the captain, up through the smoke and smell. Keep on climbing, says the captain, I think I heard somebody yell. Keep on climbing, says the captain, alive or dead, 
not ours to tell. Keep on climbing, calls the captain. Forget about your pain. We have a few more floors to gain. Keep on climbing, yells the captain. We will bring them down again. Keep on climbing, cries the captain. If I can, so can you. Keep on climbing, orders the captain. Right now, I need your best from you. Keep on climbing, screams the captain. Forget about those sounds. It's just some girders twisting and some concrete falling down. Keep on climbing, whispers the captain. Climb right up to the light. Right up to that sunshine. No smoke to smell. No fire to fight. Keep on climbing, sings the captain. That angel's hand will lead the way. Rest, boys, sighs the captain. You did your job today. Keep on climbing, praise your captain. Eyes raised, headed for the top. And when you're tired and feel like quitting, remember them. They didn't stop. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Oh yes, on 9-11, God was there to comfort and console, to hold his dear children oh so tight, to wrap them up in his loving arms and take them home. And that same God is here with us today to comfort you if you're hurting, here with us today to give us in the midst of sorrow a peace in our hearts that only God can give. He is here with us today to mourn with us in the loss of so many brave Americans. We, the people. I'm Jerry Stewart, saying goodbye for now. And be assured, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any creature shall separate us from God's love. May God bless you, and may God bless America. Thanks to those who assisted in the production of this 9-11 tribute feature. The poem, Climb Higher, was written by Langley City Fire Chief Jim McGregor. To know more about Jerry Stewart and his various patriotic programs and features, you can go now to his website at www.jerrystewartusa.com. May God bless our veterans, and God, please bless our America. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. Remembering 9-11-2001, a day we will never forget. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Looking back to September 11th, 2001, we probably don't realize uh, what we learned, the lessons then that can apply now. We learned particularly about unity and teamwork. It would last a lifetime for many of us. They seem particularly relevant today when our country is so divided as we reflect back. There's something special about facing an obstacle, struggling and finding victory together. The ultimate challenge was the crucible, the final test of uh, the nation in which we considered what had happened to all of us and what we were going to do in response. When the first aircraft hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City, we were all stunned as we watched it on our televisions. When we saw the second aircraft crash into the South Tower, we knew that there was uh, no accident. We were under attack. Well, that day, our nation made a decision. We would defend our country against terrorism, and we would do it together. The unity that we felt in 2001 seems almost non-existent today. We face a common enemy, the coronavirus, just like we did then. But we can't even agree on how big a threat it poses. And our racial divisions are even more pronounced. We are blinded by anger, injustice, and hatred. Protests and riots have taken place across the country. Some people seem to think that their voices can only be heard if they vandalize businesses or destroy landmarks. Groups of people have been demonized and others have been misled into believing false narratives. People aren't treating each other with civility, grace, or love. But in times like these, the greatness and most powerful weapon that we have is just that. It's love. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It always is hopeful. It endures through every circumstance. I don't ever um, want to experience another terrorist attack or, for that matter, another global pandemic. But don't you wish we could go back to September 12th, 2001, the day when flags couldn't be found in stores? People were uh, Americans before they were black or white or Christian or Jewish or Republican or Democrat. We were a unified people. On that day, we loved each other and we served one another. We didn't care if we ate Chick-fil-A, purchased Goya or wore Nikes. It was all about unity. Americans set aside so many differences on September 11th to fight for a common cause. We need to do that again. But the question looms, is it possible? We need to be loving and not hateful, civil and not rude, full of grace and not wrath. We have to come together as a unit, just like in the Marines, just like in the Army, just like in law enforcement and among firefighters, putting aside differences toward a common goal. It was costly for many of them who did that on our behalf. And I wonder if there's hope at all for us to do it again. We will win as a team or we will fail as a country. The outcome is dependent on what you and I choose to do today and tomorrow and in the days ahead. Well, as we reflect back on this 19th anniversary of the horrific attacks uh, on the three locations on September 11th, 2001, we are reminded that one of the things that holds us together is the flag of the United States of America. Not everyone embraces it, but it is something that represents the ideals and the principles, the aspirations from the very founding of this constitutional republic to the present. We haven't fully arrived, but we are moving in the right direction at arriving to cashing that promissory note that would apply to everyone equally. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.